0: Well, hello again, and welcome back to the Straight Aid Nursing Podcast. I'm Nurse Mo, and as always, I'm really excited that you're here with me today. We're going to be talking about rhabdomyolysis, and we'll see how many times I can say that without completely losing all of my ability to speak. So hang in there with me. We'll be saying it a lot. Before we dive into this episode, let's take a quick minute for a listener shout out. And this one goes out to Shauna, who writes this. I found Straight A Nursing a semester before starting nursing school. I dove right in with her podcast about being a student and time management. Before the start of my program, I did the boot camp and it was worth every penny. Going to and from schools and clinicals, I listened to her podcast about various topics. As a mom, I need all the resources available I can get. Nurse Mo's podcasts are the reason I'm doing so well. Shauna, thank you so much for taking the time to submit that review about the podcast. I'm so, so glad that it helps you and that you're able to make use of that time while you're driving to school, while you're driving to clinical. That's a really great way to use that time that you would otherwise probably not be studying, right? So thank you so, so very much. And I'm also really glad that you used Bootcamp and found it worthwhile. I wish you the very best of luck. So if you're wondering what Shauna is talking about, she's talking about my nursing school prep course, which if you've listened to the podcast for more than a day or two, you've heard me talk about. I'll put a link to it, though, in the episode notes in case it's new to you or you're ready to start thinking about enrolling. Okay, so rhabdomyolysis. I'm telling you, when I was working on this topic, honestly, I thought when I When I first said, hey, I'm going to write about rhabdomyolysis and talk about it on the podcast, I thought, oh, that'll be easy. I've taken care of so many patients in the ICU who have rhabdo. I thought this would be a no-brainer. But when I jumped in and started doing the research and digging through the complexities, I thought, holy cow, this is really hard. And I almost aborted the mission. Like I almost said, forget this. I can't do it. It's too hard. But then I regrouped. I went back through everything, and now I'm really excited to present to you rhabdomyolysis, which is complex, but present it to you in an easy-to-understand format. And that's why you listen to this podcast, right? So I didn't want to let you down, and I'm glad I stuck with it. So rhabdomyolysis is a condition in which skeletal muscle cells break down, and when they break down, they leak their contents into the extracellular space and the bloodstream. So that's it in a nutshell, right? It sounds so simple, but hold on to your hat. We're going to get into it. Now, we can break down the causes of rhabdomyolysis into two kind of general, broad categories. Physical and non-physical. You may also hear these called traumatic and non-traumatic. So those physical traumatic causes are usually related to prolonged physical pressure placed on the blood vessels, leading to tissue ischemia. That muscle gets ischemic. Now, this can be due to prolonged immobilization. Like, let's say you had a patient who fell down at home. Maybe they were elderly. They fell down because they broke their hip. Happens all the time. And maybe they don't get discovered for a while, and they're lying there in the same position for a long period of time. That would be something that could cause a traumatic or physical-related rhabdomyolysis. It can also be due to crush injuries, like let's say someone's in a car accident and their leg gets pinned underneath the steering column and they can't move it and they can't get out. That leg is crushed. That leg has a crush injury and they'll probably get rhabdomyolysis. And where I work now in the recovery room, we even see risk for this when the surgeon has to use a surgical tourniquet for a prolonged period of time. Other physical causes are very strenuous exercise. If you Google CrossFit and rhabdomyolysis, you'll probably find some pretty interesting stories. It can even be due to status epilepticus and high voltage injuries. And then some non physical causes can be due to all kinds of things like infection, all kinds of infections, septic shock, electrolyte imbalances, and snake venom. There's actually a lot more. But those were the ones that I found the most interesting. There's also medication-induced rhabdomyolysis, and that can be caused by several different drugs, including statins, that's a big culprit, corticosteroids, diuretics, anti-malarial drugs, and illicit drugs administered intramuscularly or intravenously. Now, the most common causes of rhabdomyolysis are trauma, overexertion toxic substances and medications. Overall, rhabdomyolysis caused by physical factors results in poorer outcomes than when caused by those non-physical factors. So let's talk a little bit about rhabdomyolysis pathophysiology. So can I just say rhabdo so that I don't completely stumble? I'm just going to say rhabdo. So rhabdo occurs when there is direct physical damage to the muscle tissue, depletion of ATP, and damage to the muscle tissue membrane or the sarcolemma. So again, that was damage to muscle tissue, depletion of ATP, and damage to the muscle tissue membrane, that sarcolemma. So in cases of physical damage, as the muscle reperfuses, remember we had the elderly patient who fell down because they broke their hip. When that muscle reperfuses, as that individual is lifted off the ground, so we no longer have the pressure on the blood vessels, we're going to reperfuse the muscle at that point, leukocytes find their way to those damaged cells. And that's going to bring along a host of other components that further damage the fibers. Now, regardless of the cause of the rhabdo, whether it's physical or non-physical or a crush injury or an electrical shock, when a muscle cell membrane is injured, there's an influx of sodium and calcium into the cell. So water follows, remember, water follows salt. So when a muscle cell membrane is injured, there's an influx of sodium And calcium into the cell. Water follows and is drawn into the cell, leading to cellular edema and disruption of those cell structures. The excessive intracellular calcium leads to further cell damage. It leads to disruption of ion channels and depletion of ATP. Once ATP is depleted, the cell has no energy source at that point. It can't operate its pumps, right? So once ATP is depleted and calcium reaches a critical level, the cell is not going to be able to compensate and the cell will die. When the cell dies, it breaks apart. And when it breaks apart, it sends everything into the bloodstream. It's going to send potassium, All that calcium, myoglobin, uric acid, creatine kinase, and other materials, they're all going in to circulation. So let's talk a bit about each of these key substances. So potassium, why do we care about that? So remember, potassium mainly lives inside the cell. So when cells die, they release a lot more potassium Into the bloodstream than the body needs. And we have hyperkalemia. So, hyperkalemia causes some serious cardiac dysfunction, and that can range from simple palpitations to ventricular fibrillation. Additionally, hyperkalemia causes significant muscle weakness that can progress to total paralysis. An interesting little tidbit about the muscle weakness and paralysis with hyperkalemia is that it's typically an ascending muscle weakness that begins with the legs and progresses upward. So in that way, it mimics Guillain-Barre syndrome. So there you go. You learned a little extra tidbit. That was a bonus tidbit for you. Okay, so the next one is calcium. So earlier I said Calcium is going to go into the cell with the water and the sodium, right? So initially, you have hypocalcemia because the serum calcium has gone into the cell. Well, once that cell breaks apart and dies, the calcium is released. So we get hypercalcemia. And hypercalcemia causes a whole range of problems, including bradycardia, It can cause hypertension. It can cause acute renal insufficiency and nephrolithiasis. It can also contribute to the muscle weakness. It also causes vomiting, nausea, and a short QT interval on your ECG. And a short QT interval can lead to arrhythmias and sudden cardiac death. So definitely, we're very concerned about hypercalcemia. And then there's myoglobin. Myoglobin is a key player in rhabdomyolysis. That excess myoglobin precipitates in the renal glomeruli, and this causes a lot of renal damage. The heme in myoglobin is broken down into free iron, which also damages the renal tubules. Additionally, The myoglobin reacts negatively with the lipid membrane, causing even more renal damage. So the presence of myoglobin in the urine is what causes that characteristic dark, tea-colored urine of rhabdomyolysis. And then uric acid, that was another component that was released. So when muscle cells are damaged, uric acid is released and it forms crystals. And guess what they do? They damage the renal tubules. And then creatine kinase, this is found primarily in the heart and the skeletal muscles, and levels will, of course, rise when muscle injury is present. So let's talk a little bit about the complications of rhabdomyolysis. So one of those is acute kidney injury. Up to about 58% of patients with rhabdo will suffer from acute kidney injury, or AKI. Renal injury is associated with a higher incidence of mortality and increased usage of renal replacement therapy or dialysis. When I was working in the ICU, all the patients that I took care of that had rhabdo were on dialysis. There's also electrolyte imbalances. So at the time of injury, we'll go through this again, calcium is going to first shift into that cell, resulting in you know, systemic hypocalcemia or a serum hypocalcemia. As the cells break apart, calcium and potassium are released, leading to hypercalcemia and hyperkalemia. Again, the most important considerations with these is their effect on cardiac electrophysiology. Disseminated intravascular coagulation is another serious complication of rhabdomyolysis. It's thought to be caused by the release of thromboplastin, and it is a late complication. If you want to learn more about DIC, please go and check out episode 173. Another complication is compartment syndrome. The release of those intracellular components and all that fluid leads to edema, which can be further compounded by the aggressive fluid resuscitation that I'll talk to you about in just a moment. This edema in that compartment can be significant, putting pressure on vasculature within that confined space and significantly impeding blood flow. It can even obstruct blood flow. If you want to learn more about compartment syndrome, write this down and go check out episode 119 when you're finished listening to this one. So, if left untreated, as you can probably imagine, rhabdomyolysis can be fatal. In severe cases, mortality rates can be as high as 59%. So, now that you have some background understanding of rhabdo, let's go through how to care for these patients and we'll use the straight A nursing latte method. To do that. So we'll start with the letter L. How does the patient with rhabdomyolysis look? So the classic triad of symptoms for rhabdo are muscle pain, weakness, and dark tea-colored urine. So that was muscle pain, weakness, and dark tea-colored urine. However, It's important to note that only about 10% of patients actually present with all three of these classic triad of symptoms. Other signs and symptoms include swelling, stiffness or cramping of the muscle, presence of a pressure injury, which could actually be what's caused the rhabdomyolysis, reduced urine output, which you would have with that acute kidney injury, malaise, fever, nausea, and vomiting abdominal pain, palpitations, and an abnormal ECG or some kind of dysarrhythmia. So now let's talk about assessment. A is the next letter in the LATTE method. So how do we assess a patient with rhabdomyolysis? So due to the high risk for acute kidney injury, monitoring urine output and urine characteristics is going to be very vital part of your nursing assessments. So with that, you'll also monitor the patient for signs of fluid volume overload, namely edema and pulmonary congestion. So basically input and output, right? How much is going in, which is going to be a lot. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then monitoring how much urine is coming out. When the kidneys are injured, when they're not functioning properly, urine output will be less than expected. And in rhabdomyolysis, you'll see that dark tea-colored urine as that myoglobin is excreted through the urine. Other key assessments include, you're definitely getting a full set of vital signs. You're likely to see elevated heart rate, elevated respiratory rate, and elevated blood pressure due to pain, due to the inflammatory response. Though I would say the inflammatory response is probably going to be more likely with the elevated heart rate and respiratory rate. Pain would definitely cause all three of those to go up, and the pain with rhabdomyolysis can be significant. You also want to assess for the five Ps of limb ischemia, and these are pulselessness, pallor paresthesia, poikilothermia, and paralysis. And the reason we assess for this is because compartment syndrome can be severe enough to cause limb ischemia. So if you want to go through more of those five P's, and again, those were pulselessness, pallor, paresthesia, poikilothermia, and paralysis, head on over to episode 119. You'll also be performing a neuromuscular assessment. You're looking for signs of muscle weakness and muscle tenderness. You'll assess for localized and systemic edema, especially when giving fluid boluses. You'll assess cardiac function with continuous telemetry monitoring. You'll ask the patient and the family about possible causes. Let's ask about recent traumas. Let's ask about infections that the patient may have periods of immobilization, maybe they've had intense seizure activity or intense exercise, and what medications they take. You'll also assess neurological status because drugs and toxins can induce rhabdomyolysis. You'll perform a thorough skin assessment, illicit drug use, injuries, bites, stings. These can all cause rhabdomyolysis. You also want to ask the patient about their drug and alcohol use. Some common culprit substances are alcohol, cocaine, marijuana, amphetamines, and ecstasy. And you also want to ask about recent illness or exposure to infection. Assess the patient for signs of infection, such as swollen lymph nodes, presence of a cough, do they have a fever, maybe they have a rash. Common viral causes are influenza Epstein-Barr virus, and cytomegalovirus. Common bacterial causes include group A strep and salmonella. Malaria is also a culprit, so inquire about recent travel to locations where malaria is prevalent. Viral infections, interestingly, are the leading cause of rhabdomyolysis in children. So the next letter in the latte method is t What tests will be ordered or conducted for a patient with rhabdomyolysis or suspected rhabdomyolysis? So we want to get a 12-lead EKG because, again, the patient's at high risk for those electrolyte imbalances and cardiac arrhythmias. We also will be measuring creatine kinase. It is highly sensitive to muscle injury and will begin to rise within 2 to 12 hours of the onset of injury and it will reach its maximum in 24 to 72 hours. So serum CK levels are typically going to be at least five times the normal value, so way up there, with typical ranges between 1,500 and 100,000 units per liter. So I'm going to say that again because that's astounding. Serum CK levels are typically at least five times the normal value. And you will typically see ranges between 1,500 and 100,000 units per liter. This is the primary diagnostic lab test used to identify rhabdomyolysis. Now, we can also look at myoglobin, but not as its own definitive test. It's only used to confirm a diagnosis. And the reason for this is it has a really short half-life. The body clears it really quickly. So it's not going to be sensitive enough to be used all on its own. Myoglobin will rise before CK and return to baseline while the CK is still continuing to increase. So the myoglobin could be normal, but the CK is not. So that's why we use CK and not myoglobin for definitive diagnosis. Now, when plasma myoglobin levels exceed 1.5 milligrams per deciliter, that's when you'll see the tea-colored urine that is that hallmark sign of rhabdomyolysis. You can also detect myoglobin in the urine with a dipstick test. We'll also be looking at BUN and creatinine. These tests tell us about renal function and will be elevated in acute kidney injury. The uric acid level may be assessed. It will be elevated in rhabdomyolysis. And then some other tests will be done to monitor for complications or to help determine the underlying cause. Things like white blood cell count, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, or ESR, and C-reactive protein or CRP, are likely to be elevated when the rhabdomyolysis is due to an infection or a crush injury. CBC may be drawn with urinalysis, with cultures, to monitor the infectious process. Toxicologies may be done for medication or drug-induced rhabdomyolysis. Electrolyte levels will be looked at due to the high risk for those severe imbalances. We also may look at albumin levels, because low levels are correlated with high risk for acute kidney injury and more severe disease. And then if we think the patient may have DIC, we're going to get coagulation studies. And then CT and MRI, while not diagnostic on their own, may be helpful in identifying the underlying cause. And if we think the patient's got compartment syndrome, that will help us out with that as well. So the next letter in the Latte Method is another T, and that's for treatments. What treatments are provided for a patient with rhabdomyolysis? The key goals of treatment are to prevent the continued release of myoglobin into the bloodstream and to preserve renal function. So to prevent myoglobin from continuing to be released, we have to address the underlying cause. A vital component of rhabdomyolysis is identifying the underlying cause and treating it. We also want to preserve renal function, and one of the key ways we do that is with early and aggressive fluid resuscitation. So this fluid resuscitation restores renal perfusion. It increases GFR and helps increase urine output to flush myoglobin and other substances from the kidneys. While there are no Typical standard guidelines on the amount of fluid to administer—it's going to kind of vary patient to patient. There is consensus that normal saline is preferred over lactated Ringers due to the lack of potassium in 0.9% sodium chloride. So patients may receive up to 10 liters a day of normal saline to maintain a urine output of around 200 to 300 mils per hour, and we do this for a while until the CK levels stabilize, okay? So you can imagine this patient is in a critical care environment. They're getting a ton of fluids. They've got a Foley catheter. We're watching that Foley catheter like a hawk because that bag could fill up really quickly. A, we want to change it so that we don't get backflow, right? And then B, we want to make sure we're getting the amount of urine output we expect because if we're not, this patient's going to be at risk for fluid overload. And there's probably a sign that maybe that acute kidney injury is worse than originally suspected. So early and aggressive fluid resuscitation is key. Another treatment is bicarbonate administration. A sodium bicarbonate infusion may be used in patients with severe rhabdomyolysis, and this would be, in general, someone with a CK above 5,000 or evidence of a significant muscle injury. And of course, this will vary patient to patient. So sodium bicarbonate raises the pH of the urine and may help prevent acute kidney injury by diminishing the harmful effects of myoglobin on the kidneys. However, it's not used in all patients. It's only going to be used when arterial pH is less than 7.5, when serum bicarbonate is less than 30 milliequivalents per liter, and when the patient does not have hypocalcemia. Then there are loop diuretics. These aren't given often, Unless the patient has fluid volume overload. And we have to be aware that loop diuretics may actually cause hypocalcemia and cast formation in the kidneys. So it's definitely not something that's routinely used. But if your patient has fluid volume overload, the MD may decide they could benefit from a loop diuretic. And then there's mannitol, again, not routinely used, but could be used if urine output is not what we want it to be. If that urine output is not adequate relative to the amount of fluid being administered. Mannitol is an osmotic diuretic. It causes a pretty good increase in urine output. We're also going to address hyperkalemia. And why is that? That's because... Elevated potassium levels, hyperkalemia, can cause significantly dangerous cardiac arrhythmias. So we can treat it pharmacologically or we can treat it with dialysis. So the pharmacologic treatment for potassium, when the potassium level is too high, is to give insulin plus dextrose. So this combination causes a shift of potassium into the intracellular environment. Patients with significant hyperkalemia may also receive calcium gluconate, and and that's not because the calcium is going to do anything for the potassium level, but what the calcium will do is it will make the heart less irritable, so it's less likely to go into a dysarrhythmia with the hyperkalemia. We say that the calcium gluconate is cardioprotective, so you may hear that term used in the clinical setting. And then I mentioned it earlier, hemodialysis. So in severe cases of rhabdomyolysis, where the kidney injury is really extensive, and when patients have fluid volume overload, dialysis will be needed. And then, of course, we're going to treat secondary complications. For example, a patient with compartment syndrome may require a fasciotomy. Patients with DIC will get that addressed. They'll get platelets. They'll get cryoprecipitate. They'll get FFP, and maybe some red blood cells. So we'll definitely be addressing those secondary complications. So the final letter in the LATTE method is E for educate, and that's basically your key teachings for the patient or for their family. So the important education components for your patient are to help them recognize the cause of the rhabdomyolysis so that they can take steps to prevent future occurrences. This may include getting vaccinations to avoid infection, avoiding overexertion, abstaining from illicit drug use, or even avoiding certain medications. Other key teachings include that individuals can reduce their risk for exercise-induced rhabdomyolysis by starting new exercise routines gradually, staying hydrated and avoiding excessive heat exposure, They should also understand and know the signs of rhabdomyolysis, that fatigue, weakness, the muscle aches, and that tea-colored urine, and that they should seek medical help immediately. Individuals who have suffered acute kidney injury should avoid nephrotoxic medications, including NSAIDs, until their MD states it is safe to do so and the individual should also be instructed to return to activity slowly after recovering from rhabdomyolysis. Swimming and other water exercises are really good choices to prevent muscle strain while also avoiding heat exposure. So I know that was a lot. This is Such an interesting topic, and I covered a lot of things for you here today. So if you would like to get a study guide that goes with this episode that has all these key things that I just taught you in a very easy-to-digest format, I will put a link in the episode notes to Power Guides, which is my weekly downloadable study guide that I would love for you to get your hands on. You can go to straightanursingstudent.com forward slash Power Guides and you can learn about it there as well. So I would love to see you back here next week. We're going to be talking about amniotic fluid embolism. I've been getting a lot of requests for more maternal newborn topics. So we're diving into that next week. I'll see you then. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.